Alright, hello everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the Association NBA Podcast. This is Sam Ruth here, joining me once again is Tommy Wood. Tommy, what's going on, man? Not much, just dreading these, uh, that come up Monday in about 12 hours and, you know, not wanting to get back to work, but isn't everybody. Yeah, and well, a lot of people, it's, it's, we're recording this on Sunday, January 14th. A lot of people have Martin Luther King Day off tomorrow. so I unfortunately uh, do not. No, I actually worked uh, yesterday, today, and I will be working tomorrow. Shout wow. out to the Harpoon Brewery, my employer. Actually a wonderful place. If anybody's ever in Boston, feel free to come by for a pint, a pretzel, and a tour of the facilities. Um, also, shout out to those of you who have listened to our first few episodes. This is episode 5. If you do need to backtrack and hear those first few, you can find them on Anchor.fm, which is where we host the podcast, as well as on Apple Podcasts. And shout out to my guys in the Woolly Mammoths, the band that I am a part of, who set us up with that intro music that you heard before we started talking. Uh, with all that said, though, we do have some stuff to get through, too, from the week in the NBA. Before we dive a little too deep, one hypothetical that... Uh, I basically begged Tommy to talk about before we started the podcast, but I think he's game, is that we're going to find out who get got voted into the all-star uh, pool, I guess, so to speak, sometime this week. And this year they're trying out the system where the top, the top vote-getters from each conference are going to proceed to draft their team. Um, I am dying to hear your thoughts on this, Tommy, because I can't stop thinking about who would LeBron pick first? Who would Steph pick first? Maybe it's going to be KD and not Steph. Would they pick each other? I mean, who? <laughs> well, I don't even know. I guess the first pick. Like, that's the other question. Do they flip a coin? Is it who has the best record? Is it the dubs because they won last year? Like, there's so much to sort out. Yeah, this has been a pretty opaque process, and it's kind of a bummer it's not going to be on TV. But regardless of who it was, I would pick Giannis first. I mean... And not only is he my favorite player in the league, he, I feel, you know, like he's even more suited to dominate an all-star game than he is a real-life NBA game because all-star game is all just dunks and oops and transition play, and that's perfect. And if you have him on your team, he can sleepwalk his way to 50 points. You know, not a bad, not where I would have gone with it, but absolutely a, a defensible selection. Along that vein, this isn't where I was going to go with it either, but uh, if we're just talking about who would dominate the All-Star game, I'd go with Anthony Davis. Last year, he won the MVP in New Orleans. He was the only guy on the court really trying, but um, did some absolutely superhuman stuff, even more so than he does during NBA games when guys try besides him. So I think he's coming off a hot All-Star game, and even though it's in L.A. this year, and I don't know any ties he has to L.A. besides he goes there to play basketball a few times a year, um, he probably wants to back up his MVP performance, and yeah, uh, he's just a beast that people forget about a lot, but he's still a physical freak and still can throw down some thunder dunks that we all love seeing in All-Star games. Yeah. One of my favorite things about the All-Star game is, uh, you know, I guess one of, one of the only things I enjoy about it, because it kind of, it's kind of a trash product, but, um, <laughs> is when you have a player in there who is so outside of the typical All-Star mold. You know, like when Paul Millsap was making all-star games in, in Atlanta. Or, uh, you know, my favorite was Andre Miller back in the rookie-sophomore challenge where even as a rookie, he played that old man game. And he, the crowd was booing him because he wouldn't dunk. He was just laying it up and shimming his way into the post. Oh, my God. Why am I not even surprised about that Andre Miller tying his shoelaces around the back, eating hamburgers, and throwing up layups in the rookie-sophomore game? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, we'll see how the draft ultimately affects the quality on the court. Obviously, one of the reasons is they want it to improve. They want guys to care more. Uh, one other thing on this is I just, uh, I wonder how much team and uh, loyalties and former beefs are going to get involved in this. Are we going to see Durant and, and, and Westbrook on the same team? Are we going to see LeBron and Kyrie on the same team? Is LeBron going to draft Kevin Love? Uh... Yeah, is whichever warrior going to draft the rest of the warriors? Like somewhere, somebody's going to get left out to dry here, and we're all going to have fun watching it awkwardly play out, right? Yeah, someone's feelings are going to get hurt, and they're going to have to come back from the break with like a nice Rolex in their locker room to patch things up. <laughs> I guess, I guess, or uh, 
or they'll patch things up at, at some club in LA at four o'clock in the morning with uh, Clay Thompson <laughs> DJing, Asia Clay getting his game on in the DJ booth. Um, <laughs> with that aside, though, we uh, definitely the All Star Game's coming up the second week of February. We are going to be talking about that more, I'm sure, as it gets closer. Uh, some stuff that happened in the past week or so, though. Uh, some quick updates, just like some quick hits really are. Uh, some guys came back from injury. The If you care, the Knicks got Tim Hardaway back. So mostly just funny to think about his contract. The Bulls did get Zach Levine back, and that's that's the first time he's played for the Bulls. Uh, he did get traded in the offseason as part of the Jimmy Butler deal, and that's the first time he's been back playing basketball in close to a year since uh, Blues and ACL last year uh, took Levine out. Another return actually was to coaching. Steve Clifford is back in the game. Uh, some of you may remember or didn't know that, that in December, Clifford took a leave of absence from coaching the Charlotte Hornets to address some health issues. It was some headaches. Uh, Woj had a great article about it on ESPN. Sometime this week, I don't remember exactly what day uh, that gave the specifics, but um, just some kind of quick hits there, and uh, I don't know. I mean, we talked about how Charlotte's kind of a mess. Do you think Clifford coming back could clear things up for them and maybe write some stuff or, or at least get Malik Monk on the court some more? Well, I, I certainly hope it helps the latter. I don't know how much of a difference it will actually make. Uh, you know, he's clearly a better coach at this point than... Steven Silas, but they weren't playing particularly well before Clifford went out either. Um, I think their problems are a lot more, have a lot more to do with their roster construction than uh, really anything that Steve Clifford can mitigate. You know, I think guys like Batum and, and Williams are really starting to decline. Um, you know, Howard obviously is already on the decline. Um, and just the guys like Michael Carter Williams aren't contributing, you know, really, uh, you know, Tyler or Cody Zeller, uh, wasn't having a great year even before he got hurt. Um, and you know, so then that was bad for their depth. So no, I think they're a little too far out of it that this is not going to make a difference. Yep. I, uh, I'm with you there. Although one thing I could, it, I think it could make a difference in is with Clifford back, he is the, you know, it seems like he's got the full support of the ownership, not just in addressing his health issues, but in guiding this team over the past couple of years and moving forward. Maybe this is the time that he finally assesses the talent he has once and for all and gives MJ or Rich Cho, whoever else, the green light to do that camera trade we were talking about or, or get Dwight Howard traded yet again or whatever else. So certainly we'll keep an eye on that, but probably the not necessarily the biggest piece of news last week, but one that got a lot of play because there were some good clips, and it's always fun when this happens and nothing too serious comes out of it, is we did get a fight. We got uh, in the Raptors heat game, Serge Ibaka and James Johnson came to blows. And actually, one of the better NBA fights I can remember in the last couple of years because we actually threw, threw some punches real quick, began and ended about 10 seconds. Everybody had fun with it because James Johnson actually had an MMA career, Serge Ibaka, uh, showed off some real titanium balls in, in not backing down an inch, and they both got hit with one-game suspensions. But uh, pretty much just just a segue for us here, because we did want to talk about both these teams, and starting with the Raptors, who are without question the more legit of the two, currently 29-12. and 12. Uh, Third place in the... No, second place in the East. Uh, I see. The, the, here we are again, subconsciously believing the Cavs are better than the Raptors, even though it's not necessarily so. <laughs> Leading the, leading the way for the Raptors is DeMar DeRozan, who is yet again having a career year. Um, I've been rambling a lot so far here, Tommy, so I'm going to throw it over to you. And feel free to either give me some thoughts on the Raptors or if you want to start by going right in on DeRozan. Uh, he's certainly changed some things and we're seeing the results of it. So that's helping the Raptors and it's helping him as well. Yeah, I mean, everyone's been talking about how, how well DeRozan's been shooting the three ball lately. And looking at his game logs... Um, in detail, it really started on December twentieth, um, when and that was a game in which he he went three for four from from three, and then in, in that game and the twelve games since, he's uh, shooting fifty percent from three on about five attempts per game, averaging twenty eight point six points a game. Um, he's shooting almost shooting fifty forty ninety over this stretch, um, while at the same time getting to the line more than seven times a game, sixty percent true shooting. Uh, 31% usage, 7% turnover rate, and 25% assist rate. So he has just been on fire. 
Um, and what's interesting is that really the only thing that changed that changed for him about this stretch compared to how he played uh, earlier in the season is a three point shooting. His um, his free throw attempts, his turnovers, um, his assist rate has all pretty much stayed flat. But what what the difference is, he's literally doubled his three-point shooting percentage over the last 12 games from where it was, uh, you know, the, the previous stretch. So, you know, I, I don't know how sustainable this is. You know, we could be looking back at the end of the season and laughing about those, you know, three weeks when DeMar DeRozan was one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Um, but I, I think he's going to settle down somewhere in the middle. But even if he's at, you know, 34, 35%, that'd be a huge improvement over where he's been at any point in his career. And I think what's even more important for him than, you know, making these shots consistently is just having the confidence to take them consistently. Um, because that, I think, is what's going to make most difference in the playoffs. Uh, I'd expect teams to still not really guard him in the playoffs. So he's going to have to be willing and confident enough to take those shots in big moments um, you know, to not to be afraid to pull up off, uh, you know, off of a screen if they go under him, you know, to like be quick on, on those catch and shoot releases. Um, you know, it's one thing I've noticed with him a little bit is he does still have kind of an elongated shooting release and he's kind of been stepping into his three pointers instead of hopping into them, which it'd be nice. He'd get them off a little more quickly with a little bit more rhythm in that case. But it, it, you know, as unsustainable as it may be, it's still pretty encouraging to, to see it out of him. You know, you're just going to have to see it in in the playoffs before I can really believe that it's real. But that's how kind of everything is with, with DeMar DeRozan. It comes down to, can he do it in the playoffs? Because he hasn't so far. No question. Uh, I mean, that, that point you made there at the end, I think, is not just what we're waiting on from DeRozan, but really all of the Raptors, especially DeRozan and Lowry. Uh, one thing is that, that he you mentioned that really the past 12 games have been good for him, and especially since on New Year's he dropped 52, the record for most points scored by a Toronto Raptor, and, and since then has been on has been especially potent. Um, I don't think the three-point thing is, is a mirage. I really think this is a part of his really? game now. Um, and you're right, it's more recently as opposed to a season-long thing. But just looking at uh, his career, you mentioned pretty much the rest of his numbers remain the same. Um, I mean, he's he's taking the most threes in his career this season. It's the first time he shot more than three uh, per game on average. Um, and he's also having the most efficient season uh, since his rookie year when he was only taking six shots a game. Last year, he was scoring the most points um, that he ever had, but he was doing it on a lot more field goals, and now he's he's uh, making more of those shots along with taking more threes. He's just making more of his field goals in general. Um, I think that shows his evolution as somebody who, who he's always been a, a, a gunner, but he's, getting, he's picking his spots a little better. Um, and also the fact that we're seeing him take more threes, uh, it just gives him that much more space to operate because... People have it in the back of their mind now. There's film of him hitting, you know, six of nine and five of seven or whatever, having really good three-point shooting nights, and he can turn around a game with that even if he's not using it every night. He's, he's shown a willingness to take close to ten threes in a game and make more than half of them, and that can be the difference in a lot of games. So kind of fun to see him run the show a little with Lowry out with his, his butt injury. Um <laughs> Sounds like Lowry could be back as soon as tomorrow, if not most likely the game after that. But uh, DeMar is, uh, I don't know why, I feel like I'm, I can refer to him by his first name. My good pal DeMar, <laughs> yeah, who I like to get bagels with on the weekends. No, yeah. I've never met DeMar DeRozan. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, I, I, I think one thing with him that, that might be a little more sustainable than the shooting overall is his shooting from the corners. Uh, shooting 46% from the corners all season long. Um, and, you know, in, in the games of his I, I've watched, uh, you know, in this really hot stretch, that's where he's hit. You know, he's hit a few wing and above the break threes, but most of his, his hitting has been from the corner. And that's where he really has hit, um, you know, against, oh, I, for, I, I forget who it was, against his 40, in his 45-point game when he's had his previous career high. 
Um, he, had, he had a four-point play in the corner. Um, he had a really tough fadeaway three from the corner against uh, Philly in that 52-point game. So, you know, even if his shooting numbers decline overall, uh, you know, the corner three is obviously the easiest three, and he's been shooting well there all season. So that, I think, uh, is where, you know, he could see have a little more uh, consistent success, I think. You know, I was just looking at some of his playoff numbers from – this is just from last year. Um, and he shot 36% on long twos in the playoffs last year. And that – those comprised 45% of his shot attempts. Ugh. Yeah. His career playoff true shooting is only 49%. Um, so it's – you know – I have reason to be skeptical of what DeMar can do, even though he's he's a really fun guy to watch in the regular season. Um, you know, his, his usage and his turnover rate in the playoffs don't change. The only thing about his game that changes is he stops making the shots that he hits in the regular season. And his free throw rate uh, goes down in the playoffs as well, which which makes sense. The refs let, let defenses get away with more contact. Um But if he's going to become a, a successful playoff player, this three-point shooting is going to have to stick. Yeah, that uh, the, you you pulled out some pretty ugly playoff stats there just from from last year, and I mean, in, in the words of Jason Bateman, that that's not good, Cotton. So he <laughs> he will need to turn that around for sure. And I mean, he knows, you know, if we can find that out in however long it takes to pull those stats up, then he's poured over those tapes and knows what happens to him in the playoffs can't happen again, and and we'll see if he can keep himself evolving. Um. Real quick, just just team wide. I mean, we talk about how DeRozan's changed. Do you think that there's enough evidence here that the Raptors could have something different in the postseason? I mean, do you think having a year of Ibaka now means that there's more uh, hope for his presence, or something else with maybe the rookie Ananobi? I think Ananobi gives them more hope than Ibaka. You know, because they had Ibaka for their series against the Cavs last year, and they just got ran. Um, I, I don't think Ibaka is, you know, really capable of, of helping them check a guy like uh, like LeBron. Certainly not on a switch or one on one. And you know, maybe if he can rotate and and help quickly enough as as the five. Um, but I think Anobi, he has the strength and the length to match up physically with LeBron, and he has a lot of quickness. Um, you know, obviously LeBron has you know more than a decade of worth of skill you know, built up and Ananobi's a rookie and that's where you, you know, really start to uh, worry because, you know, theoretically Jalen Brown is a, is a guy who could have, who could physically match up with LeBron and LeBron just eats his lunch every time the Cavs play the Celtics. Um, so theoretically, I think Ananobi could be a, a good help against them. Um, and just in terms of the, the Raptors' style of play, it seems like in, the, in crunch time, they do deviate back to some iso ball and that worries me a little bit because that makes me think that they might uh, kind of regress back to their old style in the playoffs um, just because that's that's the nature of the playoffs and, you know, slow it down, grind it out. Iso ball just becomes more and more important the deeper you get. Um, you know, and DeRozan and Lowry are decent isolation players, but they have not been able to do it in the playoffs for now four years running. Um, so I think they're going to have to. They're going to have to keep it up the way they've been doing if if they want to, you know, win a round or two. Um, but at the same time, you know, they've performed really well. Their young guys have really stepped up. Um, you know, we'll see how they how they do on a big stage. But you know that they this is kind of a battle tested team at this point. You know, even if they've really only had one deep run. Yep, that's uh, y- you uh. Again, right there at the end. I mean, they've they've got plenty of playoff experience, even though it hasn't gone super well. So, it, regardless of what happened, the times they went to the playoffs, the fact that you've been there is is valuable no matter what. But I mean, you mentioned the fact that that in the playoffs things slow down, and I do want to switch over to to the other team from our our, our uh, MMA street fight matchup of the week last week, which was the Heat with James Johnson and. I mean, it, the Heat are on pace right now, not just to make the playoffs, but to have home court advantage in the first round. They're currently sitting in the fourth seed in the East. Um, I don't know if it's possible for the Heat to slow it down if they get to the playoffs, because they're ranked 28th in pace right now. 
um, they score, what is it? They, they have the third fewest field goals attempted per game in the league. Um, they score one of the fewest point totals in the league, uh, but they're 24 and 17, even though their plus minus is negative 0.6. Uh, and they're sitting in fourth right now in the East, or actually they're 25 and 17 now, even though they're three games above potentially, uh, being the eighth seed, uh, you know, they have home court advantage right now and that means something. And they've come a long way from being 11 and 30, which is about where they were at this point last year. So, uh, what do you see in the heat who are in the top half of the playoff picture right now? I think they're definitely a playoff team. They're not a top four in the East team. Um, just looking at them right now, I mean, they've been, they've been on a tear lately, eight and two in their last 10, seven wins in a row, including a demolition of Milwaukee. We're recording this on a Sunday, so it was earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I look at them is they're now six wins better than, than their point differential. And you, you mentioned that earlier that they have a negative net rating. Um, I think they're on kind of an unsustainable run right now. You know, to a le- to a lesser extent, like their you know eleven and thirty and thirty and eleven stretches last year were equally unsustainable. Um, you know, this is a team that has they have a lot of athleticism, and even though they don't play with high a high pace, um, they just they're kind of a chaotic and and frenetic team. It's just a a ton of driving kicks on offense, just an endless series of you know, attack the rim and, and throw it out. Um, and on defense, they leverage that, uh, you know, athleticism to just kind of wreak havoc on, uh, you know, on opposing offenses. Um, it, it, it It's weird. Um, they attempt a lot of threes. They're fifth in three-point rate, um, but they're only 14th in uh, three-point percentage. So, you know, that they take the right shots. Um, they they just don't really make them. And that, that's why their offense looks so ugly. And they don't have a ton of creators outside of Goran Dragic. And especially now that Dion waiters is, uh, is out for the season. I, I kind of want to get your take on waiters. Cause you know, last year he was so critical down the stretch to them, almost making the playoffs. He double he bet on himself and doubled down. He got his big contract. And then this year he's, he's just been horrible, you know, 49% true shooting. Um, He's really kind of been a drag on their team. So, as much as it pains me to say this, do you think they're going to be better off without Dion for the rest of the season? It's entirely possible. I mean, he missed the last 10 games, and they have now won seven in a row. So, recently they have been with better without Dion. Uh, maybe it allows them to just play, you know, as, as we both threw out various stats and observations, like they play a slow brand of basketball, but it's a brand where they're trying to take the best shots as often as they can. Anybody who's watched Deion Waiters play knows that that's not really his MO, although Spolstra reined him in pretty well the last year and a half. Uh, this year, yeah, maybe, I mean, that ankle, they they took him off the court and tried to have him just rest it and then decided sometime over the last few days that he was going to get the season-ending surgery, so... Who knows how long that was bugging him, but uh, he also, his season ended prematurely last year um, to a separate injury though, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, this might just be kind of, you know, what what they're stuck with at this point, um, you know, because he, he has been hurt a few times. Um, but yeah, I you know, I think a lot of what he did so well last year was kind of making the typical Dion Waiter shots, you know. A lot of pull-up twos, a lot of tough contested jumpers at, at unsustainable rates. Um, so some regression was to be expected from Waiters. I just didn't think he'd be this bad, um, you know. And he's definitely a contributor to to their offense, you know, being so bad. They're only twenty-first in in offensive rating, um, you know. But they, I mentioned their lack of shooting, like outside of Dragic and. Uh, Kelly Olynyk and Wayne Ellington. They really don't have anybody who's, you know, kind of an average three-point shooter. I guess Tyler Johnson and Josh Richardson have been okay this year. Um, but there are a lot of guys, you know, and I like that they take so many threes, but they there are a lot of guys that just don't have the business, you know, taking that many just based on their career shooting percentages. Um, and, you know, Olynyk right now, he's only, 
he's shooting 43% from deep, but he's only taking three threes a game. Um, and, you know, he's, he's started, I think, you know, the last, uh, like, 10 or 12 games for them. I, and his uh, attempt rate hasn't really gone up over that stretch. So I, I'd like to see Kelly shoot a lot more threes, um, like five or six at least. I mean, you, you know this guy can make them, and, you know, what else is he out there for if not to take shots like that? Um, I like Josh Richardson a lot. I think he's a really nasty defender. Um but again, like he, he's not really come along as an offensive player to where they'd like him to be. Um, so, yeah, I just don't know where else the shot creation and the scoring and the shooting is going to come from when when the rubber hits the road. They yeah, they're asking a lot of Dragic. Even uh, I just saw in tonight's win over the Bucks, he scored eleven points in the fourth. Like he carried them when it mattered down the stretch. And, I mean, when he's on the court, there's a reason they were willing to give up two first-rounders for him. He's a guy who can create an offense and have an offense centered around him on a successful team. But the way that the roster is shaped around him, it, it really gets sticky fast. Um, Richardson's developing a reputation. He's going to be in the league for a long time, it seems. But you're right. He's got a long way to go on offense. Um, Justice Winslow, I don't know what that guy's deal is. But there's no yeah. way I'm trusting him with, with any any large percentage of an offense. And... You mentioned Olenek's been starting lately, so yeah, that means Olenek starts next to Whiteside, and that's bizarre, and it can work when you've got Dragic, and those three guys all offer very unique skill sets that give a defense a lot to consider, but that's also really weird that it's not super effective on, on offense, Kelly Olenek, or on defense, rather. Kelly Olenek's always been kind of tough to find the right spot to put him on, on defense, because he's a center size but he's a pretty slight frame and he's actually got pretty slow feet so a power forward will blow by him but a center runs over him so I don't know if if having him next to Whiteside really helps you much I guess because Whiteside's such a rim protector maybe that can cancel some of the Kelly factor out but just awkward fits all up and down the board and I think that that's maybe one place that Dion benefited too where in some moments where all these guys kind of felt cramped on the court or, or you know, they just couldn't do another 10 Dragic Whiteside pick and rolls because the defense had it figured out, you can just throw it over to Dion and he can make something happen on the side. And, and now they've lost that. And uh, we'll see if that means a step forward for Josh Richardson, kind of like the rookies in, or the young guys in Boston have been able to take advantage of the, the Hayward time not being there. Uh, we'll see if it means we see more action from Justice Winslow or... Uh, I'm still waiting to see Tyler Johnson uh, earn the money he got for, for them matching that Brooklyn offer. I I really have wondered a lot lately what it would be like if he was playing in Brooklyn uh, or what this team would look like without him, but he's they're stuck with him now as a part of their core. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing, but just weird to think about all these pieces moving forward. Um, but just for this year, do you think, you mentioned you still think these guys are a playoff team, do you think they're, they could hang on to the home court, or do you think somebody's going to gun them down? No, I don't think they're going to hang on to the home court, because I don't think they're going to be as good a regular season team as uh, either Washington or, or Milwaukee. I think one of those teams will eventually gun them down. Uh, you know, we mentioned their uh, point differential at, at, at the top. I think that's they're just going to come back to earth a little bit. Um, you know, I, I see them as a six or seven seed, maybe a maybe a five. Um, you know, I think they're getting they're getting Justice Winslow back from injury, which is it's good. Um, I don't know what he is, but he's a better defender than Kelly Olynyk. So I think maybe you look at starting him at the at the four. Um, I would even look at starting Bam at the four next to Whiteside because I just I just like Olynyk as a backup center. I don't like him as a starting power forward. Um, you know, and then you can bring him and James Johnson in together, um, and let Johnson, you know, almost run the point and let Olenek space around as, you know, they're, they're a pretty good bench four or five combo. Um, and yeah, you, I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Like, I don't want Kelly Olenek defending starting power forwards. It just doesn't work. Um, the one, one more thing about, about the heat is they just turn it over a ton. Um, you know, Richardson, 15% turnover rate, uh, Dragic, 13%. That's actually, that's not bad for a starting point guard, but Olenek, 20% higher than his usage. Um, James Johnson, 19%. It's the same as his usage. Um, 
Bam, 14%. Uh, same as just barely lower than his usage. Winslow, 13%, barely lower than his usage. Um, Whiteside, surprisingly, actually doesn't turn it over that much. Um, <laughs> Udonis Haslam has only played 45 minutes this year, but he has a turnover rate four times higher than his usage rate. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Udonis. You know, he, he is... I, he has stuck around this league for far longer than I expected him to back when he was, you know, riding the bench as a 15th man for those LeBron teams. Um, but, you know, good good for him. Uh, Jalen Rose once said that the best compliment you can give an old NBA player other than calling them a star is, you know, calling them a veteran. So you're, you're a vet, Udonis, in the purest sense of the word. Keep cashing so, them checks. Yeah, buddy. That, uh, yeah, I, there have been so many, I wish I knew the number, consecutive seasons where I've looked at the bottom of the Heat roster and said, oh my god, Udonis Haslam still plays in the NBA. You just, I never, I feel like I never see him, uh, on the court. Like you said, only 45 minutes this season. I just, like, I've assumed what, because what will end up happening is he'll just be another assistant coach along with Juwan Howard. (laughs) Of course this is going to happen. Um... One day he's just gonna like show up with a suit on, and they're just gonna know. Like I don't think he's gonna <laughs> retire. I don't think they're gonna be like, "Oh, you did it's your last season." It's gonna be like game sixty, and he's just gonna show up with a suit, and he's not gonna have any basketball clothes. And uh, <laughs> like uh, James Johnson's just gonna walk up and be like, "Hey, coach, will you rebound for me?" And it, it'll just be like that, and nobody's gonna say a word. Um, and he's going to get paid the same amount, and he's going to have a .05% ownership stake in the team, and it's going to be great. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Or, or they just keep him on a roster until he's in a wheelchair, and you look up you know, at, at Kobe's and Dirk's 20 seasons with one team record, and all of a sudden Haslam is at, like, 34. <laughs> he's, just, he's just walking up to the bench with a walker, keeping oh, his warm-up suits on. Turning it over 8%. 8% his turnover rate <laughs> just skyrockets, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, interesting, regardless. It's uh, it's funny. I feel like the Eastern Conference has a lot of compelling teams. So it maybe this is just me thinking this, and it's not reflecting of of what's actually uh, the opinion out there. But it seems like the Eastern Conference's reputation has improved a little bit this this season so far. Um, but looking at the fact that Miami can be fourth with some glaring holes on the team. And looking at how kind of muddled the bottom of the conference is, do you, do you think there's actually some improvement going on here? Or do you think that after a few pretty awful seasons in the Eastern Conference, we're just taking this middling level as a sign of, I don't know, we're just, we're just grasping at straws here? Uh, yes, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think with the, with the talent drain that – You've seen um, kind of you know east east to west with, with guys like you know Paul George getting traded from the east to the west. Uh, same thing with Jimmy Butler. Uh, you know that type of discrepancy is inevitable, um, and star power was already kind of clustering on on Western teams. Um, but no, I, I don't think we're you know. Uh, with that said, I don't think these improvements are really anything to to sniff at. You know, like. Um, Indiana's 22 and 20. They're eighth in the, in the, uh, East, you know, no one thought, I didn't even know if they'd win 20 games all season. I mean, I I didn't think they were that bad, but, uh, same thing. Detroit is better than expected. Philly is hovering at 500, um, which is impressive for them. Um, you know, even like teams like, uh, the New York teams, Brooklyn and, uh, and the Knicks, I think have both outperformed expectations. Um, and while neither of them are good per se, um, they're still not as abjectly awful as you know people thought they were, um, and there are some dog shit teams in the West too. I mean, Memphis, Sacramento, the Lakers, yep. the Mavericks, uh, the Suns. Uh, you know, there there are some really poor quality teams. You know, once you get, you know, once you get past ten, you're really honestly past nine in the West, past the Clippers. There. Are, uh, you know, the Jazz are pretty far back there. There are a lot of teams that really have, have a prayer. Um, so there's some weak teams out, out west, too. I mean, and then in the east, you have guys like the Hawks who are just as bad as everyone expected they would be. 
the Hawks are, are sad to watch and just to share an existence with. Um, quick shout out for the Mavs. Uh, they are still one of the worst teams in the league, but they've actually, over their last 25, they're 12 and 13. So after a really, really, really bad start, they are doing okay. Uh, still not even sniffing the playoffs, still looking for a good lottery pick, but more respectably being bad, um, and, and having Dirk around. Also, you mentioned the New York team. Shouts to our guy, Spencer Dinwiddie, who's been getting a lot of love. He's been playing great this week. Currently leads the NBA in assist-to-turnover ratio. Um, yep. He's been getting a, a kind of a, a little bit of all-star love. I don't think it's actually going to turn into a roster spot. I, I would bet a large sum of money that I don't have that it's not going to, but still cool to see our uh, our guy who used to really light it up in the Coors Events Center is uh, – finding himself a place in the NBA, and it seems like all it took was for him to get an opportunity. Yeah, that, that's how it is. With, how it seems to be with a lot of young guys. I mean, not just opportunity, but uh, opportunity in the, in the right organization with, you know, even, you know, I don't want to say the right co- roster construct because they're still not a very good team, you know, other than when Spencer's on the court. Um but just with a coaching staff that can take advantage of his talents and, you know, I want to say that believed in him, but not even, you know, he would have been their third point guard before Jeremy Lin and, uh, and D'Angelo Russell got hurt. He has just taken advantage of, of an opportunity and made the most of it. And I mean, we've, we talk a lot about Spencer Dinwiddie, but it's just really cool to see him having this level of success. Um, you know, I would try to trade for him in a heartbeat if I, were a contending team that needed, uh, you know, point guard help. And granted, there aren't uh, there aren't a lot of those because point guard is a pretty deep position. But if I needed guard depth, I mean, he is on one of the best value contracts in the league. Um, you know, Danny Larue wrote an interesting piece on Real GM about how uh, if Brooklyn wanted to extend him uh, starting next year, they would. Uh, there's about some complications with that, but he could end up getting a deal. Um, I think as high as three years, forty-five million. Um, if if Brooklyn chooses to give him uh, his maximum extension, so wow, yeah, he, he's in line for a payday. Good for him. I, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just a couple of the teams we talked about the last week and even the last ten minutes. I could see him backing up Dragic. I could see him in Charlotte grabbing some of the Kemba minutes if if that trade went through. I I could even see him going back to Detroit. <laughs> but I don't think he would do that. I'm not sure that the Detroit Spencer Dinwiddie I don't know if Stan Van would do well. that either. No. No, I, I think Stan saw what he needed to out of Spencer and didn't like it. But you're right, we do spend a lot of time on, on Spencer. But but someone else who's making the most of a new opportunity is Jimmy Butler. He was my pre- yes. preseason as MVP, and I felt like an idiot for a little while. <clears throat> I still think that's not going to be what happens, but he's starting to get some buzz as a Dark Horse MVP candidate of source because... Minnesota's been playing great. They are the the team du jour of the last week and a half, couple weeks, because they have been on a tear, winning and winning big. They beat the Knicks a couple days ago. They beat OKC by a fair margin. (coughs) Excuse me. They beat Cleveland by a fair margin. And they beat New Orleans by just about 20 points, and that's all in the last week and a half. Really, if you look at it even further back, Minnesota's won 11 of their last 15, and they've surged up to fourth in the Western Conference at 28 and 16 and Jimmy's right there in the middle of it what do you think of the reunion of Jimmy and Thibodeau and Jimmy's play leading this team to uh, uh, some pretty quality wins over the last couple weeks well Jimmy and Thibodeau are just a match made in heaven because everything I've heard about Jimmy Butler uh, has just led me to believe that he is one of the most uh, insanely hard workers in the league the dude is like just addicted to work and that matches his coach's personality perfectly, you know, where he's uh, demanding and he doesn't, uh, you know, take, he doesn't let anyone else uh, slack off around him. Um, and it had to be hard for Butler to come into an environment like this where he's playing with two uh, young guys in Townsend Wiggins who have never really, uh, not, not even really, who have just never been around winning in the NBA. They don't know how to win at this level. They've never been a part of a winning culture. You know, they got, uh, Wiggins, I think got half a season with Kevin Garnett, but that's, uh, you know, Garnett was obviously at the end of his career. Um, 
there's only so much he could do for Butler to. I wouldn't say he has the same level of intensity as KG because nobody does. Uh, but to have a similar level um, of just intensity and, and focus and, and dedication, uh, it, not only is that rubbed off uh, on Carl Anthony Towns, it seems, who's finally kind of got a fire lit under his butt defensively. Um, but, I mean, it's just paid immense dividends on the court. I mean, Jimmy Butler has been carrying this team, and uh, like you said, well, I don't believe he is the MVP. He certainly played his way into that top five. Uh, he's, you know, he's just been unbelievable. Twenty, uh, Actually, you know, lower usage than I would have thought from him, only 24.6%. Um, but 58% true shooting. He's getting to the line a ton. He's scoring uh, from everywhere, and he's doing it efficiently after kind of a slow start. And he's just defending his ass off, too. You know, like Jimmy Butler is is known to do, and he's just been carrying this team on both ends of the court. I think he's a large part of the reason why they didn't decline at all with, you know, uh, Jeff Teague uh, out of the lineup. Um, and I think that also kind of uh, – that got me thinking – you know, that Teague might be pretty superfluous to, to what they do. I think it seemed to me like Tyus Jones could just step in there and, and handle things kind of, you know, without, you know, without a hitch. And uh, makes me wonder why they're paying Teague so much damn money. Um, but, yeah, Jimmy Butler has just been unbelievable. The Jeff Teague thing, I'm starting to realize, happens. It, uh, even just this offseason, I can think of similar situations where a team has a splash and then they give you the, but wait, there's more, and like they didn't need to. Sacramento signing George Hill after they had that great draft was or yep. was for them there, yep. but wait, there's more, and it's like, yeah, but he doesn't fit when you, with your roster. And uh, <clears throat> Okay, Seagrab and Mello after they got Paul George, that that's it, but but that one makes a little more sense. Um, another one that made complete sense was the Celts getting Kyrie after they signed Hayward. That's a, the good version of it, but the bad version is Minnesota already having plenty, uh, and then saying, no, we'll grab Jeff Teague too. And it's like, all right, well, do you actually want to see Jeff Teague on the court with Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns and, and Jimmy? Like if you actually consider all those guys needs and when we've seen them all play their best, uh, even though we haven't actually seen the best basketball out of Towns and, and Wiggins yet, hopefully, um, definitely Towns, hopefully with Wiggins, it just, Never felt like an awesome fit to have the four of those guys on the court in crunch time because their skills did not overlap in a great way. So I'm with you. I've always liked Tyus Jones. Um, his size limitations are gonna get in the way. Um, that doesn't mean he can't he can't uh, take over more of the duties. And yeah, they could do a lot more with that money than than throw it at Jeff Teague, especially because. Tibbs gets so picky with his lineups as we really went off on him. I think it was our first or second episode. We really dug into him for not playing guys uh, enough. Um, maybe if they could spread that money out to some guys that Tibbs likes more and he can spread that roster a little more, get some more guys in the 20-minute range. That would help out. But just one more note on Jimmy. I, I like what you said about the fact that or, or when you noted that he's gotten more comfortable offensively as the season's gone on. I think that that is a direct reflection of the Timberwolves as a team overall, just getting more comfortable with each other and what their style of play is going to look like on both sides of the ball. And that has led to this success over this past month where now they've they've lost four games since December 15th. Um, I think they're just more comfortable as any team that uh, has a lot of a big roster overhaul like they did uh, will take some time too. Uh, Kyrie this week said on the J.J. Redick podcast the Celtics are way more comfortable now than they were in October, and that, that that's obvious. That's like, I the people I work with now, I barely knew them a month ago, and now I like them because I spent time with them. Like that's just what life is like. Yeah. But um, I think he's gonna be unlocking some stuff in Wiggins and Towns games over the second half of this season that I'm really excited for because even though a lot of the Jimmy Butler experience is, I'm Jimmy, I'm gonna go do this. Watch how cool it is. That's not everything, and, and I think that you mentioned his mentality, the, the grind that never stops, uh, is going to rub off on those guys in, in great ways uh, moving forward. And already, I haven't seen this enough to really stand by it, but on Zach Lowe's podcast this week, he had one of the, the, the T-Wolves guys, it was like one of their play-by-play guys or something on, and he said that Towns is 
defense has improved dramatically and if that's the case then watch out because that was a huge hole on this team so things are trending in the right direction I guess yeah you know it they are the one part of this team that really isn't trending in the right in the right direction that that they need to be if they want to you know reach their potential is Andrew Wiggins I mean he has just regressed so badly this season and it's been you know, I was never the hugest Wiggins fan in general. He already had some pretty massive holes in his game. And this year, those have just been magnified. And, and the things he does well, which again, are, are there are not many, uh, you know, have kind of have been pushed to the side. And I'm sure a lot of that comes with, you know, the kind of redundancy in, in position and in at least theoretical offensive skill set that he has with, with Jimmy Butler. But he's still taking more shots a game. And Butler and Teague. I mean, and Towns. He's also taking more than Jeff Teague, but he should be. Um, he's leading this team in shots per game, um, which is a little ridiculous when you consider how inefficient he's been. Um, you know, he just signed that max contract over uh, over the offseason, and it's just he has not been living up to it. Uh, you know, only 500% true shooting, which is by far uh, the worst of his career. His free throw rate is also below 30% for the first time in his career. It is, it is by far a career low. Um, you know, he's not turning the ball over, which I guess is, is the one positive thing you can say about him. But his assist percentage, which was never great to begin with, is a career low. Um, and it just, it just looks like his mind hasn't evolved either. He's still taking the same types of shots that he has been. He's still taking, you know, way too many pull-up twos. Um you know, I God, I'm looking at a shot distribution right now. Um, almost just about two thirds of his shots uh, are are long twos. It's just not, uh, or oh, not two thirds. Um, about forty percent of shots are are long twos, which is just you know way too many. Um, his three point percentage is down. His defense has not improved to where anyone thought it would be. Uh, coming into the league, uh, I, what do you think is up with Wiggins, Sam? And why has he not been able to take a step forward? Because everyone thought uh, that Jimmy Butler would kind of un- unlock the potential of his game. It's uh, it, it could become a, a real problem here fairly soon because yeah, he uh, you'd imagine those two guys on the wing on both ends of the floor really it, it'd be magic. It'd be one of the best combos in the league, but. It's a bit of an awkward fit. I mean, Wiggins is, like you said, still kind of what he has been the first four years in the league. Uh, but this year is just a worse version of that. Uh, you mentioned you taking the most shots on the team. I had to double check that. I didn't realize that was the case, but you're absolutely right. And he's got the the ninth best, uh, like just field goal percentage at a basic level. Like he's one of the worst uh, efficiency guys, which you illuminated in a little more detail. But he's taking the most shots. Uh, yeah, I don't know why they can't tell him to stop. percent from the free throw line, too. Which is way worse than his career average. His yeah. career average is in the mid-70s, but now he's he's shooting way worse from free throw. Uh, maybe he sees Butler as a threat, and this is all psychological, and Thibs doesn't like him, and he's trying to get him out of town. I don't know. If, I'm not, I can't take it that far. But but maybe instead of Jimmy pushing him like forward, he's Wiggins feels like he's getting pushed aside, and now he's forcing it a little too much. Taking that many long twos is just horrendous, especially when you have some all-world talent around you that can take better shots and that you can help set up to take better shots. So if they want to keep being a top-four seed in the West and if they want to actually be a team that people are afraid of, they got to figure out a better way to get uh, the most out of Wiggins. And, I mean, I think maybe something that could help is just giving him a swift kick in the pants and telling him to quit taking these awful shots. Start looking around at the guys around you who are considered the best talents in the NBA and look at what they do and, and emulate it and be more open to criticism, maybe, honestly, because looking at, at not just this year, but his full career, like these are things that he has done time and time again, and they aren't going to make him uh, get, they're not going to allow him to get the most out of the talent that allowed him to be the top pick in the draft and, you know, crazy, amazing prospect at Kansas and in high school. Um, seems like he's kind of just wasting it and it might come from a place where he's unwilling to adapt yeah you know i mean if anyone's gonna light a fire under under your ass wouldn't it be jimmy butler uh being in your in your locker room every day like sharing the core with you yelling you 
yelling at you every time you, you know, miss a defensive assignment. Should uh, be. Yeah, I, I feel like if that isn't going to change things for you, you know, n- nothing will. Um, you know, I, and he's still so young. You know, he's he's, he's still only, only 22. Uh, you know, again, I did dumb shit when I'm 22. When I was 22, I do dumb shit now. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not perfect at my job, so you got to give him time to grow. But what's it's like you said, what's been concerning is that he's still the same player that he was when he came into the league and that you haven't really seen any evolution in terms of skill uh, or in terms of, you know, his, his style of play. Um, you know, that that is concerning. What do you think about the cornrows? I dig the rose. Yeah? Yeah. Wow, I didn't think you were going to like him. You like the cornrows? Yeah, I dig, I dig the rose. Yeah, they're uh, they need to make a comeback. You know, they there aren't many basketball players who rock those anymore. No, him and Kawhi, man, that's all we him got. And, yeah, him and Kawhi, I like it. You know, then when you feel like letting it out, you can let him out and have a throw. Yeah, like, I, I like him. They're very versatile. I dig. I'm glad you like it. I uh, I need I need more time before I can give a verdict. What uh. Here's one that's not not quite as fun to talk about. What do you think about the hitch in Markel Fultz's shot? How are we gonna get that thing out? Ooh, I you don't see the know, video man. clips, right? We saw some video this week, and it did not look good. They might need to hypnotize him or something. Yeah, just trick him into thinking he's a good shooter. Seriously, I would do it tomorrow. Yeah, I, I don't know what's wrong with him, man. It's it's the, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Because apparently he's healed now, right? Yeah. Like, isn't that? It, it, you know, hasn't he been reevaluated enough times, and and his muscular imbalance is gone? I I don't know what it is, man. Like I've never heard of a basketball player getting the yips, uh, at least not like this. He's been medically uh, cleared for a month. Yeah, it, it it it's crazy. Do you think? Did you see what Rodney Hood did the other night? No. When he slapped the phone out of the dude's hand. Yes, yes, yeah. that was epic. Yeah. That, did you see he got fined 35k for that? Did he? Worth it. Yeah. I yeah, dude, I that was going to be a question I had for you. Is should he have been fined or should they make him the NBA logo? Should they make him slapping <laughs> throw it out of a fan's hand the new logo? I think plenty of guys would like it. I do believe he should be fined because he interacted with the fan and that fan paid for a ticket so he could do that <laughs> even though it was obnoxious and I would have done the same thing. Um Absolutely worth it. Made me love Rodney Hood as a player. Uh, he's also been pretty good this season for Utah, so that's cool too. Um, one other thing, uh, do you think that Victor Oladipo is going to be the most improved player? Yes. Is there anybody else, or is it even? I think it's the race is probably over. Or Giannis, I guess, could be too. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say Giannis is just about the only other player you know, he came in. He was coming into this season saying he wanted to win MVP and Most Improved. Um, but yeah, I think with, with Most Improved, they you know I feel like the voters look for the just the most dramatic uptick in in numbers. Even if you know you were to look at you know maybe just like a, a pure skill based perspective, uh, you know what Giannis is doing could be up there. Um, but even when you look at that, you know, Oladipo has added the pull-up three to his game. He's just become such a, uh, a complete player that uh, I don't think a lot of people thought he had in him. Um, so, yeah, I think he's got it locked up. Um, you know, if Andre Drummond had kept up his free throw uh, shooting, um, if he had kept it up at like 70% like it was uh, the first couple games of the season, um, you know, I think he deserves a nod because of that and because of his improved playmaking this year. So I think he, he deserves some credit. Um, but, yeah, I think it's pretty clearly Oladipo. I, uh, I would have to agree, uh, and I think he deserved it, and I'm excited to see him be, uh, be a part of that, that Oladipo-Turner nucleus in Indiana for years to come. Uh, one last thing from me is that we did get some news that there is a plan for a meeting between the NBA players and the referees that's going to take place over All-Star Weekend. It's being orchestrated by the head of the NBPA, Michelle Roberts, and the NBRA, Referee Association's general counsel, Lee Seaham. Uh, earlier, I think in our first episode, we talked about the fact that those two had sat down and had a meeting that happened but didn't get 
sound like any great things happen besides both of them admitting that there's a problem between their two bodies that they represent. So we've got our next step here. Um, what would you be hoping to get out of a meeting like this if you were the players or the refs or just somebody who, who wants the NBA to benefit from this meeting? Well, I want the refs to, to put their egos aside and to swallow their whistles and swallow their pride especially when it comes to dishing out technicals against, you know, when, they, when it seems like they're trying to sun a player, you know, I, to me, that's, that's been the most egregious. Um, you know, it's like we talked about last, uh, last time we, we brought this up, the refs, um, y- you know, the, I, I think it's gotten to their heads a little bit. Um, and they think they have more power than they do. Um, or at least they try to abuse that power and it spills over in them, you know, trying to make a scene of, of, you know, yelling with coaches, yelling at players, Courtney Kirkland getting in Sean Livingston's face, you know, teeing guys up who, who, who don't deserve it um, just because of, of a power trip. Um, so, yeah, you know, if I were the players I, and as a, as a fan of the game, I, I go I go into this wanting the refs to really back down um, and to make themselves as invisible as possible. Um, but obviously, I don't think I don't think the refs want that. And I, I don't really know what they want out of this. I know in the past it seems like they had been they felt like they were getting disrespected by players. Um, but if, if if that's how they feel, and, and maybe there is some genuine disrespect out there, but if they think you know getting cussed at by a player qualifies as disrespectful, I think they need to thicken their skin, um, you know, and let these guys have what are going to be emotional reactions to a call in the heat of a moment. Um, and not be so quick to to tee them up because they didn't like what they hear. Certainly, and I remember saying basically this exact thing last time, um, players swearing at referees is not new to the game of basketball, and it will never be gone from the game of basketball um, at the professional level. It's just what happens. Um, yeah. not, not saying it's cool, not saying it should happen, but it just is what happens, and it's not going anywhere. Uh if I were the refs going into this meeting, what I would want is is at least to establish the rules of engagement. I think deep down they know that the players are going to keep cussing at them, obviously. Um, but if they can come out of this with some concrete, you know, ways to be like, these are the reasons we've been giving these guys texts. If you know, we're laying them out for you, so now you know. Now it's not, you know, yeah. now it's not going to surprise you. And if they can also just kind of state their case and be like, look, being a ref now is a lot different than it was 30 years ago. We got replay and social media and whatever, and, and things are different. The, I don't know. I don't really know how being a ref now is different than it was 30 years ago. The only thing I've ever refed in my life was a game of five-year-olds playing flag football because I had to volunteer for <laughs> it. Um, and it was a blast, by the way. Did but, you kick um, any of them out? Did I kick any of them out? No. I stopped a kid from trying to run the ball the wrong way. I whistled, well, that, that was nice. I, I whistled to play it. dead. Yeah, um, there was he was like <laughs> like even on a field of very young kids, he was the extreme youngest, and he was just running away from everyone. Um, <laughs> it was adorable, but but I think uh, you know it. You're right to to look at it from the player's point of view. Like, look, this is what we do, and and you guys keep screwing up, and you guys are messing with our livelihood, and you got to stop. Uh, Hopefully they can have the refs see that and the refs can show the players, look, we need you guys to meet us halfway and that can make the game better. Um, my gut tells me this isn't the last one of these meetings. They're, these two sides are going to need, though, to really take some concrete steps forward. I think this is going to be a little trickier than just one meeting at All-Star Weekend. Yeah, uh, I think I think it will be too. And I, I, I think the players might, would be open to you know, hearing kind of an airing of grievances from the refs, or at least a, a, an attempt to establish, you know, a method of, of communication. It just doesn't sound like the refs have even reached out with that uh, so far. It seems like this first meeting was just, was almost like just everyone airing their grievances, and then they just left it at that without trying, without getting on to a, a resolution. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see if, if these uh, this next round of talks is constructive at all. Um, 
one last thing I want to talk about before we uh, get out of here sure. is one of my nerdy uh, favorite players is uh, Davis Bertans of the, or Davis Bertans of the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah, and uh, he dropped twenty eight on the Sacramento Kings a couple nights ago. Yeah, he and did. Then last night eighteen on my Denver Nuggets in a thirty two point Spurs win. It's just ridiculous. Um, but the thing I like about him so much is that I don't know if there is like a harder or like more intense cutter. Like, like this dude. I remember watching a play against uh, against Memphis, and this was probably a, a month ago. But the Spurs are bringing it up in uh, in kind of semi transition, and uh, Patty Mills had the ball on the right wing, and Bertans started on the left wing and he just took off in just a dead sprint and just like <laughs> a dead sprint like it wasn't a cut it was a sprint from the left wing all the way to the right corner he didn't even need a screen he just shook his man with his with his pure speed and got to the right corner and splashed uh splashed an open three um that it's just fun to watch because like i've never seen a guy especially someone that tall he's like six foot ten um but he's one of those guys who's not a shooter who happens to be big. He is a shooter who happens to be big. He's not just a big guy who can shoot. He's not some stiff out there. Like, this dude can drain it. Um, and he made it rain against the Nuggets last night, six of seven on threes. Um, I just, I would love to see him get more minutes in San Antonio. He takes almost nine threes per 36 minutes. I mean, he is just like a pure, unadulterated gunner. Um, and he hits it at a 43% clip. So, he's just one guy who I've been enjoying watching. Uh, you know, these past few weeks, and I wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, I know Davis Bertans isn't listening, but if you are Davis, keep being you. I'm pretty sure the first time I saw Davis Bertans play for the Spurs, I was like, oh, Matt Bonner got a haircut. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, that's not like that guy's got a weird body that doesn't look like Matt Bonner. And then I was like, oh, this is someone entirely new. Um, yeah, but yeah, he uh, it's it's crazy the the streak he's on. I'm glad you brought that up because that's been fun, um, and also it's just always fun when the Spurs dig up guys like that and they're like, you can shoot threes, all right, go do it a bunch. I mean, that's what Danny yeah. Green started at, at for the Spurs. He's become a lot more since then, but um, yeah, Pop's always I'm, willing to let guys let it fly, and it doesn't matter if you're five ten or six ten or anywhere in between. Do you know how they acquired Davis Bertans? I have no idea. They got him in the Kawhi Leonard trade. Shut up. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they, they got him in the Kawhi Leonard trade in 2011. He was a How old second is round, he? The 42nd. He is 20. He's 25. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. He was wow. a second round pick of the Pacers in 2011, the 42nd overall pick. And they got him and uh, Kawhi and someone named Arizam Lorbeck uh, for, <laughs> for George Hill. And then he played in Europe up until uh, last year. And they, uh, they, the Spurs signed him to a, a full uh, a, a deal. Sent him to the D-League like six times. And uh, now here he is. Arizam Lorbeck sounds like a Star Trek villain. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe he'll be the next guy splashing six threes against the Nuggets, wearing the the, the black and silver. Um, keep being <laughs> you, Pop, and keep being you, RC Buford. Uh, that being said, though, we uh, we we managed to go along once again, T Bone. We we I don't know how, how much that. we're good at, but we're good at going long. Uh, and uh, I don't think it'll be the last time either. We we've thankfully got plenty of NBA season left in front of us, and we, we've got some Woo! cool cool stuff planned for the weeks ahead as well. So very excited to to get back before too long. Um, before we take off, any parting words from you, my dear Mister Wood? That's all I got, man. All right, hey, tell the listeners where they can find you on Twitter at Woodstein seventy two. That's Wood, you know, like a tree. Steen S T E I N. The number seventy two. There it is, and he's always firing the hot takes. I noticed you reply to hardwood peroxyism a lot. Do you? Sometimes I think hardwood peroxyism is just way wrong. Uh, do you think usually think so. shit's pretty sometimes, good? Sometimes I think so too, but other times he has he has takes I agree yep. with. Um, 
you know, and, and generally when he, he does some statistical analysis, he's pretty good at, at backing it up with film study. So that that's what I like about his work, that, um, you know, he doesn't just go off of the eye test or what the numbers say, that he really does take a balanced look, and it seems like he tries to confirm, uh, you know, try to confirm or disprove his preconceived notions, which I always uh, appreciate in a basketball writer. For sure, for sure. Well, you can see Tommy's one-sided conversations with him on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can see me tweet random stuff occasionally about basketball at, at Sam Ruthier. And please tune back in for the association. We'll be back next week, of course. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to, to give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, we probably haven't gotten one yet, but I can't wait for the day we do. That'll be cool. And, guys, thanks again for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Association.